read from Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll start with uh, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the, and the land of Naphtali, but, the, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in, a day, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. Burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, and his, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and, the, and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it from justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Good. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, if you turn in your Bible with me, please, to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. It's also in your bulletin for your convenience. Last Sunday's scripture reading is also from Isaiah, from chapter 7. And uh, the prophecy that uh, a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And uh, then Isaiah has some children. And uh, the Lord says, uh, these are going to be the names of your children. Uh, because they relate to what I'm going to do with the country. And so the one boy's name was Sheer Jashub. And the other boy's name was Meher Shalal Hashbaz. What a name that is. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. It's the longest name in the Bible. That's for your trivia, trivia quiz. And it means uh, quick to the booty, hasten the spoil. And uh, Isaiah's children were a message to the nation that God is going to bring uh, problems and he's going to bring destruction, especially to northern Israel. And it's going to be destroyed and Assyria is going to do it. And is Israel was thinking, you know something, we have done a good job of making some alliances and they made an alliance with Syria. And they thought, well, between us and Syria, <coughs> we are strong and mighty. We don't have to worry about anything and God says, of course, you're trusting in the wrong thing. You're trusting in people. Instead, you should repent and get right with me. Of course, they did not. And Assyria came and wiped them out. And that's where we pick up in chapter 9. Northern part of Israel wiped out. Notice what verse 1 says. Uh, I, I'm actually reading from uh, ESV today. should be similar to your NIV. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
striking that uh, Isaiah writes this in 750 B.C. And some of Isaiah's prophecies are astounding. And he writes about this time when Zebulun and Naphtali would be humiliated and wiped out. But a future time he sees coming when this region will be just blessed by God and it will have wonderful times. Now what seems strange is that usually when you talk of Israel, the northern kingdom, you talk about Ephraim. Ephraim was the power. Like in the southern kingdom, you would talk about which tribe? Judah. Judah was the strong, populated tribe. In the north, it was Ephraim. It was right in the middle of the country. It was the most populous. It was the strongest tribe. That's usually what he talks about, Ephraim. But here he's talking about Zebulun and Naphtali, the two tribes to the west of the Sea of Galilee, and maybe a little up above the Sea of Galilee. Those two tribes. He says you're going to be wiped out, but a day is coming when it will be so wonderful. He will honor the way of the sea, the region of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so it's not surprising that when Jesus comes, he lives in Nazareth. And most of his career is in Capernaum. That's Zebulun and Naphtali. That's where Jesus Christ has most of his teaching, most of his career, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the water to wine in Cana, uh, the healings, all kinds of things. That's the bulk of his ministry. Zebulun and Naphtali. It's strange to me that 750 years before Christ, he has this amazing prophecy that that is what's going to happen. And it's just striking that uh, that, that is it, that that's what he has to say. Notice verse 2. The bringing about of his reversal. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And he says, all, all, it looks all bleak. Nothing good is ever going to happen here. But he says, the time is coming when the light will shine. It's interesting that the English novelist in the 1800s, in order to change what was going on in England, they shone a light by writing stories about the plight of the lower class. And so you have stories like Oliver Twist to shine a light on what happens to, to, a, to a little boy who is in a workhouse and who is abandoned and left on his own. And as people read those stories, they thought, we've got to do something to change this. Well, God does the same thing by sending a light. And he sends the light into the darkness to say, here's the darkness. Oh, look how terrible it is, but there is hope. And the hope is, of course, Jesus Christ. And I wrote a number of reasons why Jesus Christ is this light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, they should have clued in when Jesus said this, John 8, 12. 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Maybe he's thinking of Isaiah chapter 9. I'm the light of the world. I'm that light. How is he the light? I'll give you five quick ways. Number one, Jesus, Jesus shows us better than anyone else what the Father is like. He lights that up for us. What is God like? What is God's relationship with humanity? Jesus shows us that better than anyone else. He's the ultimate revelation of God because he is God. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, or maybe it should be translated, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side has made him known. He lights and shows us God. Number two, Jesus shows us better than anyone else the deep darkness of the human heart. And so when Jesus comes and he speaks with people and he meets with people, he exposes hatred and selfishness and worldliness, disloyalty to God, and self-righteousness. Number three, Jesus shows us better than anyone else the wonderful, terrible remedy for sin. Wonderful, terrible remedy. Wonderful, it's God's plan and it's good for us. Terrible, because terrible things have to happen for your sin to be forgiven. The Son of God has to lose his life. Terrible. And so the cross of Jesus is a light for us to see the wonderful, terrible remedy for sin. Number four, Jesus shows us better than anyone else what humility, love, and servanthood is all about. I suppose a king could give up his throne to become a commoner, but this king adds humanity to divinity. The largest come down ever for the sake of another. And Philippians talks about that. That this might be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant, and being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and become, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And number five, Jesus shows us better than anyone else the tremendous future that is possible for the righteous, and the horrendous fate for the wicked. And after all, the book of Revelation, verse 1, 1-1 one, one is... The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. Notice what the light brings. Verse 3. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Talking to God. God does this. You have increased joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. God does that. He's the one who reverses the fortune of the people. He brings joy by sending Christ into the world. Uh, the second Sunday we were in Uganda, and uh, 
hopefully we'll be able to talk about this more fully. Uh, climb timers in January. I think Joanne and I are talking about our Uganda trip. So normally it's for seniors. If you want to hear everything you've never heard about Uganda, come to Prime Timers in January, the second Tuesday of the month. Anyways, the older children of the orphanage, the teenagers, and uh, those who were graduated from high school, uh, they went farming every day. And they got up at 3 in the morning to farm until noon, every day, three till noon. And then they went to school at one, came home from school at seven. They had supper at eight, maybe 8.30. You had to go to bed at nine because you're getting up at three to go to the farm. Right? That's, that's just, that's life. If they don't farm, they don't have any food, right? This orphanage is an indigenous orphanage. Money's not coming from the West. Money's not coming from the government. You work in order to eat and to live. And so uh, Sunday, we had a service, and the service ended around noontime, and we had a service at the orphanage. And later in the afternoon, I went down because I saw the, the older kids were down there doing something. I thought, what are they doing? So I went down, and they were harvesting the beans, and the beans were growing in the middle of the banana trees, and there were five of them were, that were hoeing, and two or three of them were gathering up all the beans and pulling them out, and uh, they put them in big piles, and so they had some big piles of all the bean plants that they had taken out, and I said, what are you guys doing? They said, we're harvesting the beans. I didn't dig with them. It was hot. I watched them, though, for a little while. And they harvested them. They had them in huge bundles, and then they carried them up the hill. And then later that night, a group of 12 of them sat around a little fire, and they chucked the beans, and they filled up the pots with beans. And I said, what are, what are those for? And they said, this is tomorrow's lunch. <laughs> right? Harvesting today, we're eating it tomorrow. When Joanne and I had to cook a meal for them, we cooked chili, and we bought some beans, kidney beans in cans. I don't know. Have, how many of you bought kidney beans in cans? Okay. How many of you have ever bought tomatoes in cans, like diced tomatoes or something like that? We bought that. And the girl says, what are those things in cans? And I said, we have some beans in cans. And she started laughing. She said, I've never seen beans in cans. And then, then I said, well, we've got some tomatoes in cans. And she started laughing again. She had never seen canned vegetables. Never. Unless you pick it and then cook it, you've got nothing to eat. You don't have enough money to go to the store and buy canned vegetables. And it makes a different like the rejoicing over the harvest makes it a whole different deal <laughs> when this is the only food you have. Uh, for, for me, you've heard about my garden. It didn't work. And thank, thank the Lord I didn't have to rely on the few little tomatoes that came out of my garden after I spent $100 on that garden. 
I think they were, I think they were $33 tomatoes. It didn't matter to me. But for them, that's it. If you don't harvest it, you've got no food. And so the joy over harvesting food, like that's what it's talking about here. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. I suspect that's the way children are Christmas morning, right? Dividing the spoil. Whoa, this is fun. This is joyous. And he says this is what the nation has when Jesus Christ comes and he shines his light. And it's so joyous. This is wonderful. Oh, so glad. And he describes how this happens. Why are they so glad and joyous? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his pre- oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. God brings freedom. Two aspects. Physical freedom. Sometimes here in the West, we discount this, but most of the world lives with physical oppression. Most of the world. Their governments oppress them, and that's common in Uganda. In fact, they joke about it. They have to. You have to laugh at it. They laugh that their public works department is the most corrupt in the world. They have all this money to go for roads, and a bare trickle of it gets to the road. So the roads are terrible. Communist countries rob freedom from people. Muslim countries rob freedom from every other religious group. The majority of the world is oppressed. And God will end that. Just like he did in Gideon's day. And the Midianites were riding in and taking their crops and oppressing the people. And God broke that in one day. So he says they're glad because the yoke of this oppression has been ended. Now, I also think there's a spiritual freeing as well. In fact, the spiritual freeing leads to the physical freeing. We've already seen the spiritual freedom take place when Jesus Christ breaks the power of sin in individuals' lives. He talks about that in John 8. We don't have time to turn there. But when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed because He breaks the power of sin and we're all enslaved to sin. But Jesus Christ breaks that. And once you've broken the power of sin... In individuals' lives, you can break the power of oppression. So God brings freedom. Verse 4. Verse 5. How does he bring that freedom? Another four. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The warriors are gone. He's 
says that metaphorically by saying their clothing is burned up. There are no warriors, there are no police officers, there are no bandits, there are no robbers. Those occupations are kaput. We spent an afternoon and evening with a judge in Uganda discussing the problems in Uganda, the political situations, and the crime problems. He spoke freely about some of those problems that Africans face today. He said, it's so sad that slavery exists in Africa. And he says there are slave markets in northern Africa just like there were two to three hundred years ago. And people are sold on the block as slaves. They're examined and they're sold. The oppression is a reality. And then after talking about that, he looked around surreptitiously. We were in a place where it was uh, 80% whites, very unusual. And uh, Daniel drove us in, and we had to go past a guard to go here. It was on the Lake Victoria. And as we drove in, Daniel goes, he goes, this is wonderful having a Mazunga with me. Because he said, I would still be there trying to talk my way in. But when I have a white person with me, I go straight in. So he goes, this is wonderful. Anyways, we're sitting there talking at a table. The judge looks around, and he said, we have problems here in Uganda. He said, we have police who are supposed to look after children and investigate child molestation and child abuse and child theft kidnapping. But he said, if you were to call them up and you were to say to the police, we've got a problem and this child's in danger, the police would say to you, come down so we can fill out a report, but bring some stationery and a pen. Because they don't have stationery and pens. But he said what they do have is tear gas. He said they've got everything they need to suppress people, suppress crowds, control people, but they don't have the basic things they need to investigate crimes against people because that's not important to the government. And you look at this and you go, wow, the Lord is going to end that kind of oppression. He is going to finish it. That's the hope of the world. And then in verse 6, he gives you a further explanation. How is this going to happen? And this is the story of Christmas. And unfortunately, this was supposed to be the bulk of the sermon. <laughs> Notice verse 6. How is this going to happen? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One of the top experiences you will have in life is the birth of a child. Tremendous apprehension followed by extreme joy. Concern for mother and child, followed by gushing pride and relief. A joyous time for friends and family. 
And of course, your life is changed. And Isaiah is capturing that as he says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is our child, and this is our son that is given to us. 750 years before Jesus. Spectacular. I suppose the closest thing that we could come to this in our day would be the English royal family when Prince Charles and Diana have a son, had a son. It was big news. William changed the line of succession. And then William and Kate had a son. And again, that was big news. The line of succession had changed again. The world was interested. The nation was enthralled. Well, the birth of Jesus is just like that. Here's a child that is born to us and given to us. I like the way the angels say it in Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For to you. He's talking to the shepherds. It's not their baby. But the angel says, this is your baby. It is your baby. For you is born this day. This morning, this is the key point. Jesus Christ is born for you. To us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. It's for you. For you. Notice the amazing thing. The government shall be upon his shoulder. A baby with the government upon his shoulder. It's almost like Isaiah doesn't even see him growing up. He has to, he has to talk about that in other prophecies where he talks about the coming servant and he talks about the suffering servant. But as he looks at this prophecy, he sees it just as the child and the child will have the government upon him. Every time we elect someone, I keep thinking, maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe now we've got somebody in office who will do a great job. And almost always they're disappointing. In fact, if I talk to U.S. presidents, I have not been excited about any of them. At the end of their term, I'm always disappointed even the ones that are Christian and godly and do great things. At the end of their term, I'm going like, what in the world was that? This will be different. Finally, a government that will do the right thing. Verse 7 talks about it. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and evermore. Everlasting kingdom. Of course, the end of the passage. How does this happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. God does it. Finally, notice the names. His name will be called and I take these as couples. He's a wonderful counselor, phenomenal counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, she says this, When the Messiah comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said, I that speak to you am he. He will declare all things to us. That's a wonderful counselor. That's Jesus Christ. He will declare all things to us, everything that we need to know to have a relationship with God. Second title, the mighty God. The mighty God. Jesus declared, all power is given unto me. He is the mighty God. One of my favorite passages about this is Colossians 1. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or authorities or rulers or, or dominions. All things were created through him and for him. That's mighty God. He's made everything. And I love the way Paul captures that. The things in heaven and the things on earth. That's everything. The things that are visible and the things that are invisible. Everything. Thrones, dominions, powers, authorities. Everything created by Jesus Christ reading uh, an article from a professor at MIT, a Christian, and uh, he was answering, uh, talking about miracles, whether Christians could believe in miracles. He said, I'm a Christian, and I believe all of creation is a miracle, because Jesus Christ holds everything in his hand, and he upholds everything by the power of his hand, and if he were to stop, the world would end. He goes, that's why I believe in miracles, because I think every day is a miracle. Without the power of God doing something today, it's all over. That's Jesus, the mighty God. The everlasting Father. Seems strange that Jesus would also be called the Father. But there are a number of scripture passages, number of scripture passages where the Father and the Son are the ones together who make up a plan to send the Son. And so God, Jesus Christ himself is a father to us. And he is the father who lasts forever. It's another way of saying that he is very God. And finally, the Prince of Peace. I wish I could say that we lived in a world of peace. We do not. The last hundred years have been the worst in the history of the world. Olive Jackson, and these uh, flowers are here from her funeral on Friday. Olive Jackson was born in World War I, 1916. She came to Christ in World War II. 1942, <laughs> and she died this past week, 102 years. But what a lot of warfare 
and bloodshed that 102 years encompasses. Not just the world wars, the Russian Revolution. All of Jackson lived through that. The Chinese revolutions. All of Jackson lived through that. The ongoing destruction of the Middle East. The, dis- the, the ongoing wars in Africa. Uh, Korea. There's a war that's gone how many years? 60 years? Maybe it's ended. I don't know. Uh, the world's still not at peace. But you know who's going to bring it? Jesus. The Prince of Peace. And Isaiah sees this time when he comes as a child and he says, this child coming has changed everything. And I think he sees everything that the child will accomplish throughout his entire career, but he sees it all kind of like in one little snapshot. And so he says, this child is the one who is going to bring about all these wonderful things. That's the story of Christmas. This child is changing the world, has changed the world, and will change the world. Isaiah sees it all in one little snapshot, and he lays it at the feet of a child and a son who is given to us. And uh, we are called to put our faith and our trust in the Prince of Peace. I call on you to do that today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.